You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 34, Boston Massacre Fallout and the Townsend Acts Repealed, mostly. So I ended last week with the British regulars having opened fire on a crowd, leaving five colonists dead or dying. The small squad of soldiers then hurried back to their barracks to await the consequences. As soon as the threat of continued imminent violence ended, Boston officials moved in to arrest those responsible. By 2 a.m. that night, the sheriff had arrested Captain Preston. He arrested the other soldiers the following morning. On the morning of March 6, 1770, about 3,500 Bostonians met at Faneuil Hall to discuss the next steps. A group of radical leaders, including Samuel Adams and John Hancock, met with Governor Hutchinson to demand the removal of all soldiers from Boston. Hutchinson did not want to remove the soldiers and leave Boston in the hands of mob rule, but at the same time, he didn't want to be the one responsible for keeping the standing army in town. So Hutchinson simply punted saying that he had no authority to order the troops anywhere. Colonel Dalrymple, the military commander in Boston, offered to remove the entire 29th Regiment to Castle William, the island out in the harbor. On this, Adams pounced, saying that if he had authority to order one regiment out of town, he had the authority to order both of them out. Dalrymple did not want to take sole responsibility for removing all troops from Boston, he demanded that the governor at least provide him with a written request to remove the troops. Eventually, Hutchinson, feeling the pressure, submitted the request. All British troops in Boston moved out to Castle Island. Meanwhile, North American military commander General Gage, who was still in New York, tried to prevent the evacuation. But due to the days it took for the communications, the troops had moved before he could rescind the order. Once complete, Gage decided that trying to return troops would only cause more problems. In May, the 29th Regiment, which was the regiment from which the men responsible for the massacre had come, left Boston for a new post in New Jersey. Of course, Captain Preston and the eight accused soldiers remained behind in a Boston jail awaiting trial. Almost immediately after the shooting, both Loyalists and Patriots began trying to spin events in their favor. Both sides immediately accused the other of an organized conspiracy, either a loyalist conspiracy to cow the radicals into submission by killing a few of them, or a patriot conspiracy to provoke a shooting in order to get rid of the soldiers. Loyalists portrayed the soldiers as defending their lives against an out-of-control mob. Patriots portrayed the soldiers as wantonly shooting down innocent civilians engaged in a simple protest of military occupation. The Patriots also tried to bring the customs officials into it by claiming that several shots came from the windows inside the customs house, though there has never been any good evidence of that. 
Paul Revere produced a famous engraving published in papers throughout the colonies showing the soldiers mowing down innocent civilians in volley fire. Now, both sides also took depositions. A town committee headed by Samuel Adams, John Hancock, William Molyneux, and Joseph Warren sent witness accounts to former Governor Thomas Palno, now sitting in Parliament. The Tory side, however, arrived first in London. Customs Commissioner John Robinson boarded a ship for London on March 11th. He carried with him a series of military depositions and other information blaming the incident on the radicals. In London, someone published the accounts as a pamphlet, and in response the Patriots had their version and depositions published in London in another pamphlet. And I have links to both of these pamphlets online. If you visit amrevpodcast.blogspot.com, you'll be able to read the original documents. The Patriots made the most of the funeral of the four dead. A fifth would die a few days later. Estimates of the parade of mourners were about 10 to 12,000. Not bad for a town with a population of about 16,000. Samuel Adams and others spoke of the martyred victims and the ongoing struggle against British tyranny. The anniversary of the massacre would continue as a public event with similar speeches until the outbreak of war. In addition to indicting Captain Preston and the eight soldiers present at the massacre, a grand jury indicted four civilians in the Customs House, accusing them of firing from the windows. Shortly after the indictments, the prosecutor, the colony's attorney general, simply left town. Apparently he had Tory leanings and had little desire to prosecute the case against the soldiers. This began a series of delaying action where judges also began leaving town or having illnesses or injuries that delayed trial. As spring turned into summer and then fall, radicals grew frustrated at the delays. Many of the witnesses were sailors who could not remain in port for months at a time, waiting for a trial that seemed to take forever to get underway. Samuel Quincy, the solicitor general for the colony, became the new prosecutor. Despite the fact that most of the Quincy family supported the Patriot cause, Samuel was a loyalist who supported the government. Now, given his limited experience as a criminal prosecutor, Quincy brought in Robert Treat Payne as senior counsel for the prosecution. Payne had a better reputation as a patriot and would ensure a zealous prosecution. Payne would also go on to play a more significant role in the patriot cause during the war. Finally, on September 7th, Preston and his men were arraigned, entering pleas of not guilty. Then came another delay. On the day following the arraignments, the court suddenly and without explanation adjourned until the end of October. Both sides opposed this. The radicals had been fighting delays for months. Hutchinson and the loyalists believed that tempers had cooled as much as they were going to and wanted time to send a pardon request after the trial before the winter weather stopped all shipping traffic to London. Robert Ockmudi served as senior counsel for the defendants. Ockmudi served as a judge on the vice admiralty court. He knew, though, that any chance of winning required some attorneys who had some credibility with the people of Boston. He reached out to John Adams and Josiah Quincy, Samuel's brother, to represent the accused soldiers. Now, some may find it surprising that two ardent patriots would defend the alleged murderers of their fellow Boston patriots. Years later, Adams would say simply that he wanted them to have a fair trial, and that politics should not enter into that. 
Quincy, however, admitted speaking with key Patriot leaders, including Hancock, Molyneux, and Warren, before taking the clients. Clearly, neither of them were defying the Patriot leadership in defending the soldiers. I've mentioned John Adams a few times now, and clearly he goes on to bigger things in the Revolution. Uh, But just briefly to give some background on him, uh, John Adams was the second cousin of Samuel Adams. The two men got along well, but were not particularly close growing up. They did not have a strong familial bond. John lived outside of Boston in a town called Braintree. As a lawyer, he found himself in Boston on a regular basis. He associated and clearly seemed to align himself with the radicals, but he did not attend most of the political rallies or events of the time. He had, of course, represented clients in some of the high-profile trials, including his defense of Michael Corbett for murder of the press gang officer two years earlier. Despite his patriot leanings, Adams considered himself a lawyer first. He threw himself into the defense with all the zeal of a good defense counsel. As Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court, Governor Hutchinson could have presided over the trial. He had no intention, though, of going anywhere near that political mess. Four other judges would preside. One of the first things the defense lawyers did was move to separate the trial of Captain Preston from those of the other soldiers. Preston's defense relied on the argument that he had not ordered the men to fire. The defense of the soldiers was that they obeyed Preston's order to fire. Clearly, the two defenses were not compatible. Now, today's legal ethics would prevent the same lawyer from even representing both parties, but colonial standards were not quite as strict. Adams and Quincy represented both parties, but did succeed in getting them separate trials. At Preston's trial, the defense challenged the wording of the indictments, overruled, and the selection of the jury. They effectively used jury selection to impanel a jury that had at least some very pro-soldier jurors, ensuring a unanimous conviction was virtually impossible from the beginning. Trials in this area rarely lasted more than a day, but this trial became a rare exception, mostly because of the number of witnesses, and there was no system for sequestering juries. The prosecution presented 15 witnesses over two days, and they gave conflicting testimony about whether Preston ordered the men to fire. Some were sure of it, others not so much. Others admitted they heard people in the crowd shouting fire. Many witnesses indicated that Preston was standing in front of the soldiers, which is not where you want to be when ordering your men to fire. The defense produced even more witnesses, including one who had been standing next to Preston during the events in question. He testified that he had never heard Preston order the soldiers to fire, and saw Preston try to stop the firing by hitting the barrels of his soldiers' muskets. Preston himself could not testify according to the criminal rules of evidence at the time. Finally, closing arguments finished around 5 p.m. on October 29th. The jury reached a verdict several hours later, but the court did not reconvene until 8 a.m. the next day to hear the verdict, not guilty. Once released, Preston quickly fled to Castle Island to avoid any potential lynching or other mob violence. Soon thereafter, he resigned his commission and settled in Ireland. Now, Robert Ockmoody declined to participate in the second trial of the enlisted men, making John Adams the lead counsel. He and Josiah Quincy brought in Samson Salter Blowers, a young attorney with loyalist leanings, to round out the defense team. Blowers and Quincy were classmates at Harvard and had worked together a few months earlier 
on the defense of Ebenezer Richardson for the murder of Christopher Sider. Samuel Quincy and Robert Treat Payne continued to handle the prosecution. The case against the soldiers was a little trickier. Typically, a group of men acting in concert are all criminally liable for any crimes committed. However, that is only the case if the group is acting as an illegal conspiracy. The soldiers were not acting illegally when standing on the street as ordered. Therefore, they could only be held accountable for their individual actions. It was nearly impossible for the prosecution to establish which soldier shot which victim. Of course, there was no scientific evidence at the time that could match a bullet to a particular weapon. Therefore, the prosecution had to rely on eyewitness testimony that could establish a particular shot killing a particular victim. The other legal question to answer was whether the soldiers fired out of self-defense. In other words, an immediate fear for their lives. In such a case, they would be not guilty. Another possibility was a finding that they fired after being attacked, but not in immediate danger of death. In that case, they would be guilty of manslaughter rather than murder. And finally, if they fired out of malice, they could be found guilty of murder. Now, since the traditional penalty for both murder and manslaughter was death, it might not appear to make much difference. But manslaughter could often result in a lesser sentence. Now, following Captain Preston's acquittal on October 30th, the court adjourned yet again, leaving the soldiers to sit in jail for another month. Finally, on November 20th, the court reconvened with the same four-judge panel who had heard the Preston trial. Again, both sides fought over the jury. In the end, all 12 jurors came from outside Boston. Opening arguments began on November 27th. Like the Preston trial, the large number of witnesses meant that the trial was going to last far longer than one day. Dozens of witnesses took weeks to testify and the prosecution made every effort to provide witness testimony to specific soldiers' firing. The defense made the most out of the confused and often contradictory testimony. It painted the mob as a dangerous threat to the soldiers. Adams called them, quote, a motley rabble of saucy boys, negroes, mulatoos, Irish teagues, and outlandish chactars, end quote. In his closing argument, Adams famously told the jury, quote, Facts are stubborn things, and whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence, end quote. Even though the jury might not like the soldiers, it could not ignore the fact that the men were under attack when they fired their weapons. In the end, the jury found two soldiers, Privates Kilroy and Montgomery, guilty of manslaughter rather than murder. In both cases, the jury found compelling eyewitness testimony that both men fired their guns into the crowd, killing victims. The jury found the other six soldiers not guilty, with lack of credible proof that they had even fired their guns. The court gave Kilroy and Montgomery the benefit of clergy, a legal term meant to avoid the death penalty. Instead, the court ordered their thumbs branded as punishment. The six soldiers found not guilty rejoined their regiment in New Jersey. It appears that Kilroy and Montgomery also rejoined their unit, though it is possible they were assigned to another unit, but both men appeared before a British pension board in 1776, seeking to be discharged at that time. Now, the court impaneled the same jury for the soldiers to sit again in December to hear the charges against the four civilians in the Customs House. The witnesses in this case proved rather weak and pathetic. The jury did not even leave to deliberate after the close of arguments, 
before delivering a verdict of not guilty. The court then ordered the arrest of one of the prosecution's witnesses, a 14-year-old boy named Charles Borgate, for perjury. A court later convicted him and sentenced the boy to 25 lashes. Now, even before word of the Boston Massacre reached London, Lord North had begun pushing through Parliament a partial repeal of the Townsend duties. North rejected proposals for a full repeal. He believed that backing down would not solve anything. During the 1769 debates on repeal, North allegedly said, quote, America must fear you before she can love you. I will never think of repealing it until I see America prostrate at my feet, end quote. Clearly, he fell into the camp that required Parliament establish its dominance over the colonies before they could reach any resolution. So for this reason, North adamantly opposed full repeal. He did, however, agree that the tax on manufactured goods made little sense. Over the three years the Townsend Acts had been in force, the total duties collected among all colonies on manufactured goods was less than £5,000 sterling. By comparison, the tea taxes had raised over £16,000 sterling. That was true even though British tea imports to the colonies fell to less than half of what they were prior to implementation of the Townsend Acts. If a partial repeal could break the already wavering resolve on colonial non-importation agreements, revenues overall would likely increase. Britain benefited by the promotion of export of manufactured goods. It created jobs in England and produced local revenue that was subject to taxation. At the same time, North insisted on keeping the tea tax. This was the largest revenue producer by far of all the taxes, and it was not on a locally manufactured good. Most importantly, it would force the colonists once and for all to accept that they were subject to taxation. Parliament had to establish that precedent through an actual tax not some vague declaration of its authority. As with many such proposals, members of Parliament attacked North's proposal on both sides. Radical Whigs like Isaac Barra and Henry Conway still called for full repeal. Thomas Palnall, former governor of Massachusetts and now a member of Parliament, also joined them in calling for full repeal. On the other side, Welber Ellis, a member of the Grenville faction, argued that there should be no repeal of anything. Regardless of any financial issues, any repeal would only show weakness to colonial temper tantrums. During debate, Parnell offered an amendment to North's bill, essentially making it a full repeal. Parliament rejected that amendment 204 to 142. After that vote, North's bill sailed through the House of Commons and Lords with voice votes. The partial repeal became law on April 12, 1770 about the same time word of the Boston Massacre was reaching London. Now, word of North's repeal had its intended effect in America. Non-importation agreements had already faltered. Radical patriots still wanted a complete non-importation of anything until all towns and duties, and in some cases all duties, including the Older Sugar Act and others, were totally repealed. The problem was that these non-importation agreements affected different regions differently. New England made up much of its trade through smuggled goods, which would continue despite the non-importation agreements. Many of the southern colonies were cheating on the agreement so much that they were not really feeling any pain. New York, however, had seen a massive drop in imports as a result of the agreements, which were now in their third year. New York merchants sent around a circular letter calling for the agreements to be revised, 
so that they would only refuse to import items that were being taxed, which at this point was primarily tea and sugar. When other colonies rejected this change, New York decided in July 1770 to amend its own agreements anyway. Over the next few months, Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore, and others made similar revisions. After all, if New York would import these items, merchants in other colonies could not be put at a disadvantage. With the agreements collapsing, it appeared as if North's Gambit had been a success. Yes, the colonists would still refuse to drink tea, but that would not impact any businesses in England other than the East India Company. Atlantic trade could finally get back to normal. To ease tensions even further, North allowed the Quartering Act, which had to be reauthorized every year, to expire in 1770. That was one less thing to remain a sticking point between Britain and her colonies. North was well on his way to returning things to calm, normal, and profitable trade. The radicals tried to point out that accepting these small taxes would set a precedent that meant Britain might levy greater taxes later. But others argued that the colonies were still boycotting the taxed items. They just didn't want to continue boycotting everything they needed from Britain, whether it was taxed or not. So much of 1771 and 1772, things seemed to return to normal. Governors once again allowed colonial legislatures to meet. The fact that the Massachusetts Assembly had to meet in Cambridge rather than Boston still irked the radicals, but was not exactly a rallying point to set the colony aflame. Peace returned, the economy improved, and everyone seemed to relax. In short, it looked like North's strategy was succeeding. Next week, we're going to take a look at the regulator movements in the Carolinas as colonists along the western frontier fight for their rights. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.